Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 162, and it's an episode for Jess, who contributed to the Tudor Planner Indiegogo last year. Her contribution level got her her own personal episode, and given that she's getting married this year, she wanted an episode on Tudor weddings. And it's just the perfect time of year to talk about Tudor weddings, isn't it? So just as a side admin note, the Tudor Planner did sell out for 2021, But in a few months, I'll be doing the Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign for the 2022 printing costs. So you can get in on that to make sure you aren't disappointed this time next year when you're thinking, man, I wish I had a tutor planner to write my appointments in. Because hopefully by that point, we will all be having more appointments in person. So Jess, thank you so much for your contribution. Congratulations on your wedding. And hopefully we will all meet at TutorCon later this year. So Tudor weddings. I've done some episodes on courtship and Valentine's and that stuff, but I don't think I've ever done an episode specifically looking at weddings. Let's talk about marriage generally, shall we? First off, in the 21st century, we have this sort of post-Victorian romantic ideal about marriage, which our Tudor friends would not have shared with us. Marriages were essentially economic contracts. And because life expectancy was shorter for various reasons, including maternal mortality, say that 10 times fast, and war and sickness, the idea of a single lifelong marriage was unusual. Most people would have married several times for shorter periods, especially the upper classes who married younger. Three or four marriages was not uncommon. When a woman died, leaving a man a widower, he would generally marry again within just a few weeks so that he could have help running the home and caring for the children. Women would marry again, often like women like Catherine Fenkel, who was a widow of a business owner in the Draper's Guild, they would marry a colleague or an apprentice of their husband to keep the business going. Marriages had two parts to them, what we would call the religious and the civil sides. Even today, for most people, there's the civil side of registering for a marriage certificate, and then there's the religious ceremony. So that part hasn't changed. 
For the upper classes, marriage was this sort of way to move land around and ensure that it stayed in the right hands. For poorer people, the civil part was ensuring that both spouses would be able to survive and hopefully leave things better for their children. So the wealthy would negotiate these large dowries and land holdings, and poorer people would look for a spouse who might have some savings, who had some good prospects, maybe some good training, was healthy, and maybe might even come into an inheritance. Poor people had more of a say over their marriage choice, but even then the idea of romantic love as we know it was not taken into consideration. Oh, spouses were encouraged to love each other, but it was assumed to come after the wedding itself and be built on mutual respect and friendship. No one wanted a loveless marriage for their children, but they also frowned on romantic love before marriage because it could lead to (gasps) sinful behavior. Between the ages of 7 to 14, the children of poor people, they would often leave home and they would do this to get jobs or training or apprenticeships ships. They would usually become domestic servants, or they would be live-in workers or apprentices. They would serve with a master within a specific trade to learn the trade. And then after they saved enough money to be able to have a family, they were able to make their own decisions regarding who they would marry. But of course, this resulted in marriages being delayed because it meant that people had to stay in their apprenticeships for a certain period of time and to save enough money. So the median age for marriage among poor people was in their late 20s, actually. So not that different from us, probably about the same. And it's for a lot of the same reasons. They, the couples wanted to be financially equipped to be able to establish their own household. Now, even though women weren't the primary breadwinners, as it were, they were still required to support their husbands with their work. Women could be just as knowledgeable about the trade as their husband and take over the trade after the husband died, for example. And some would either work themselves, they would be servants, or they would be wet nurses. So it was the expectation, though, that the woman would run the household and would take care of the children. And so the woman also had to have domestic skills and, you know, fulfill all of those duties of an obedient wife. And of course, women did have to vow to obey their husband in the marriage vows. So there's that. Within the wealthy, there was great interest in the marriage. It was almost a a public event that even negotiating it became this public event that everybody seemed to have an interest in it in some way. But within lower classes, It wasn't that much of a big deal, mostly because within the upper classes, the kind of crucial part of the marriage was transferring wealth and land holdings. And within the lower classes, you didn't have that. So there was less for people to be worried about and interested in. So the marriages of poor people were actually a much more personal kind of affair rather than being something that the entire family and greater family network were putting together. Of course, the wealthy people would have their marriages arranged for them. And interestingly, the mother would take an active role in planning the match. And this gave her a much greater say in the lives of her children than in any other parts of their lives. She couldn't necessarily control what their education was as they got older or anything like that, but she would take a very active role in planning their marriage. The marriage was designed to join together the property and any other interests, business interests, political interests of the families. Within the upper classes, it was the financial and political aspects that were really important to consider. 
So noble families would sign contracts that betrothed their children in advance, and this would make sure they had a suitable match and would allow for them to kind of strategically advance each other in society. But the negotiations were done pretty publicly because there were a lot of people who would have an interest in this marriage. And so this, of course, was because the inheritance would go from one generation to another. So people had an interest in where that would go and and how it would be divided up. One example of how seriously this was taken was Sir William Locke. He was a father who would only allow a prospective suitor to marry his daughter after providing his account books so that he could look at his account books and see exactly how much money the man had and whether he would be good for his daughter. So people would negotiate the marriage and then they would announce it and there would be a contribution of cash or goods provided by the father of the bride. That's the dowry. It would also involve an exchange by the groom's father of a jointure, which acted as sort of a pension that would guarantee money or property that would secure the bride in case she would become widowed. And of course, there was the example of like people like Bess of Hardwick in her earlier marriages where she became a widow. Uh, even though the marriage hadn't been that long and she still pursued her jointure. And so sometimes the groom's family wouldn't want to give the jointure if the marriage hadn't been that long um, because they would say that she could go on and marry again and it wasn't necessary. So the jointure was what the groom's family gave and the dowry was what the bride's family gave. Also, it's interesting to note that in these upper class weddings, the marriage of the older son would actually be much more important because he was the heir. And it was his responsibility to ensure the continuation of the lineage. Even if they split the wealth up, the younger sons would receive much less than the older sons. So younger sons actually got married much later because they still had to go out and get money uh, the way the poorer people had to through work or through advancement, their own kind of efforts for themselves. Within the wealthier families, of course, the children would generally just accept the marriages that their parents had arranged for them. Partially, this is because the fifth commandment of honoring your father and mother was so, so ingrained. So it would be very rare for a child to not accept a a marriage that their parents had negotiated for them. The idea of consent was actually really important to medieval and Tudor marriages. And if a person could later prove that the marriage had taken place without their consent, it would be annulled. But because it was so important to honor your father and mother, very few people actually objected to a marriage that their parents had set up for them. And this would carry through even when a parent had died, it would be specified in their will. In 1558, for example, the will of Michael Wentworth said that a significantly lower dowry would be provided to a disobedient daughter who were not, quote, advised by my executors, but of their own fantastical brain, bestow themselves lightly upon a light person. So that's saying that if she doesn't listen to the executors who knew what the plan was, she would get much less money. But there were cases of disobedience that would happen. For example, in 1594, there was a Thomas Tin of Longleat and Maria Touchett who married in secret, despite their fathers being bitter enemies. It was a real-life Romeo and Juliet story, though of course it didn't end in the same kind of tragedy. Similarly, once the consent had been given, there really wasn't anything that could be done about it, like this case of Thomas and Maria. And one example of that a little earlier on was the Paston family. 
their daughter, unbeknownst to them, married their steward. And once it had been consummated, there really wasn't anything that a parent could do, no matter how angry they were. So the daughter was beaten and she was abused and all sorts of stuff was brought out to try to get her to renounce this marriage and say it was forced on her. And even the local bishop threatened her, but she would not give in. And eventually the family had to accept that the match was real and they just cast her off. So that was the consolation prize. So the church didn't regulate marriage officially. All it took to be married was a vow from both people, and no priest was needed. But the church did try its best to put all sorts of restrictions and rules around marriage. And by the 16th century, if you really wanted to have a really legit, hard and fast marriage, you would do it with a priest. But it wasn't necessary. Marriage was seen by the church as a sort of poor second choice to celibacy and was entered into for people who were weaker and couldn't take celibacy. And people would get married, the church thought, for a couple of reasons, mostly to avoid the sin of sex outside of marriage and to procreate, to make babies. Though interestingly, almost a third of Elizabethan brides were pregnant by the time they got married. So there were a couple of ways that a marriage could be entered. Based on the contract of per verba de presenti, this means the present tense of the verb, right? This involves the exchange of present consent between a man and a woman. I take you as my wife or my husband. This was a commitment that was regarded as indissoluble under ecclesiastical law. The second type of contract that made a marriage legally binding was per verba de futuro. This means future consent made by two parties who are of the age of consent. You would say, I promise to take you as my wife or my husband. And then you would follow that promise with consummation and it would become legitimate. But if the consent was not followed by consummation, the marriage could be considered null and void and could be annulled. For this contract to be broken, both individuals had to mutually agree to dissolve the marriage And while it wasn't necessary to have a witness, it was a really good idea because if you wanted to challenge it later or if you wanted to prove that it happened later on, having a witness who would testify to that was really important. And while the priest wasn't necessary to have a marriage, any issues within marriage were handled according to canon law in church courts. And the church courts were filled with young mothers who believed that they had been married but couldn't provide adequate proof when the so-called husband denied it. If the marriage couldn't be proven, but there was no doubt about who the father was, he would, of course, have to pay for the upkeep of the child. During courtship, people would give each other gifts and tokens. Often this would be a man giving coins or trinkets or clothing to the woman he is trying to woo. This represented not just personal matters, but also they would be gifts that were brought by intermediaries who were witness to it all. So again, this is having witnesses if you need them a little bit later. One example of this is William Hanwell. He asked a friend to take two pennies to a woman that he was wooing. And this meant that if there was any sort of contract that would take place, there would be a witness who could testify to it having happened. But from the woman's point of view, often accepting these gifts could lead to unintentional marriages coming from the courtship. So apparently in 1519, William Hanwell and his love exchanged present consent with each other. This was a contract that made the couple married instantaneously. Apparently, the woman later challenged this marriage, 
But there were two witnesses present during the consent who testified to being there. So Hanwell got his marriage and the woman was unsuccessful in arguing against it. There were a few stages to finalizing a marriage. The first was an agreement between the families that their children would get married. And then they would negotiate with each other on the financial parts. And then the children agreed to marry in the future, but they wouldn't consummate the match. This was the betrothal. In Northern England and Scotland, it was called hand fasting because the couple joined or shook hands to show the agreement. Then a couple wishing to have a church ceremony would announce their intention to marry by crying the bands on three consecutive Sundays. This allowed anyone with objections to come forward and state their reasons why the marriage shouldn't go ahead. A common reason would be a pre-contract where one of the partners was already contracted or promised to another person. If there was no obstacles that came up, the church would give its blessing and the couple could pursue the next phase, which was the wedding day. The wedding day arrived and the couple would show up outside the church door where a priest would initiate the service. During the ceremony, the couple took each other in marriage and promised to hold their vows until death do they part in both sickness and in health. And of course, like I said, the woman also vowed to obey her husband. Then the man would place the ring on the Bible where it was blessed and put it on the woman's right hand on her fourth finger. After the couple received their blessing from the priest, they were pronounced husband and wife, and then they would go to church for a nuptial mass to be performed. The couple would kneel before an altar, and a veil was placed over their heads. The priest would recite prayers over them, and then remove the veil, and then they were officially married. The day would continue with a party. There would be a wedding dinner and dancing. For poor families who couldn't necessarily afford a party for everybody, the guests would make gifts and they would contribute to the bride ale and entertainment. Then there was the next step, which was the consummation. In order for a marriage to be considered legally binding, it had to be consummated. So the couple could be accompanied to bed by a priest and other witnesses. And that, of course, ensured that testimony could be provided if someone challenged the marriage later. Of course, this didn't always work out as the case with Catherine of Aragon and Prince Arthur showed. Testimony could be hard to find, especially later, and it was often a bit sketchy. After the priest prayed and the witnesses saw them go to bed, the couple would be left alone and have their privacy. When looking for a spouse, conventional wisdom said that the best matched partners were of roughly the same age, status, and wealth. Marriages between people of very different ages was thought very unwise. For example, there was the 52-year-old Louis XII of France who married Mary Tudor, the 18-year-old sister of Henry VIII, and he died only three months later, supposedly worn out by his efforts in the marital bed. Robert First died in 1593. He was a gentleman farmer from Devon, and he left careful advice about the choice of a wife to his heirs. He said looks, wealth, and connections were all desirable, but the most important thing was upbringing, reputation, and personal qualities such as sobriety, wisdom, discretion, gentleness, modesty, chastity, and the ability to manage a household. The husband was considered the head of the household, but he shouldn't be overhanded about it. Sir Thomas Smith, he wrote on English government and society, saw the family household not as a monarchy, but as an aristocracy where a few of the best do govern, 
and were not one always, but sometime and in some thing one, and sometime and some thing another doth bear the rule. John Fitzherbert was the author of an early Tudor manual on agriculture, and he imagined the spousal roles on the family farm, which was, of course, a common economic unit, as complementary to each other. The wife largely worked in the house and the garden, but she might have to join in the heavier labor in the fields. Nor would she just stay at home. She would go to the mill and she would go to the market to buy and sell. There was a saying that seldom doth the husband thrive without leave of his wife. Robert First also echoed this. He said that a good housewife was even more necessary to a household than a good husband. Fitzherbert also said that when either partner went to the market, they must make a true reckoning and account to the other. If one deceived the other, he deceived himself and was unlikely to prosper. They must always be true to each other and honest with each other, he said. Some husbands and wives were actually very close with each other. There are letters that show this this closeness. For example, Sir Robert Plumpton, he was relying on his wife Agnes to defend his manor of Plumpton and raise some money for him. There was some legal cases going on, and she urged him to end this litigation. He addressed her in 1502 as his dear heart, describing himself as your own lover. Other letters show people signing off as a loving husband or a loving wife. One John Johnson ended a letter to his wife saying that he wished that she was in his bed. And many wives, of course, would be trusted to manage estates while husbands were away on business or if they were higher ranking, if they were at court or you know, spending time in London away from the family. But just like any time, marriage was work and shouldn't necessarily be romanticized. In 1563, a homily of the state of matrimony was meant to be read in churches, and it said how few marriages there were without chidings, brawlings, tauntings, repentings, bitter cursings, and fightings. The homily's main message was that husband and wife needed to treat each other with patience and with restraint and with understanding and grace. Even if love had been banished, they still had to live together. And that was true because divorce did not exist before the Reformation as a concept. If you didn't want to be married anymore, you had to prove that the marriage had never been valid in the first place. So you had to have an annulment. To do this, there were a couple of different grounds you could show. You could show a lack of consent or a level of consanguinity or affinity that had been not properly dispensed of. That's what Henry VIII, of course, tried to do with Catherine of Aragon. You could show that there was a pre-contract by one party to someone else, non-consummation, or that one of the parties was insane at the time of marriage. There were a few other options. For example, if one spouse decided to join a convent or a monastery, the other could remarry. This was the most common kind of option for men who wanted to be rid of wives to send them to a convent. Louis XII, of course, did this in the late 15th century to get rid of his first wife and marry Anne of Brittany. You could also ask the local bishop to give you a separation from bed and board, which meant you were still married and you couldn't marry anyone else, but you were permitted to live apart. So despite the fact that people in the wealthier classes got married quite early, there were still questions and concerns about when they could start to live together as man and wife. (laughs) That's a euphemism. By the 16th century, 12 was considered too young. 
Of course, in the 15th century, you see Margaret Beaufort having a child at age 12. But by the 16th century, that was considered too young, and 16 was the accepted age, though 14 was not uncommon amongst the very high levels of society. And this was generally because the male needed an heir, and he didn't have time to wait around for the girl to become old enough. By the time the couple was in the mid-teens, consummation would sometimes be encouraged. But Henry's, Henry VIII's illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, Duke of Richmond, was married at age 15 to Mary Howard, and he was not permitted to live with her as his wife. So that was still considered too young. Doctors believed that abstinence was bad for the health for both men and women. So the view of sex as being good for married people was then weighed by the church, which attempted to regulate the marital relations. Theologians considered excessive sexual activity within marriage to be sinful because it meant that the husband was treating his wife as a prostitute. Women would often be blamed for tempting men. There was this idea that women were kind of just running around tempting men every which way you went. And that, of course, comes from the idea of Eve tempting Adam. Because they were seen as inferior beings, women were considered to be far more driven by physical desires than men. There's a lot of medieval humor about unsatisfied wives running around after younger men. The church said that spouses should not have sex on feast days, fast days, saints days, Sundays, during any period when a woman was unclean, i.e. menstruating, pregnant, breastfeeding, or within 40 days of giving birth. If all of this was taken into account, you would have an average of about one day a week. But if everybody would have stuck to this, there would have been like hardly any children born. So most people other than really, really religious people didn't necessarily pay attention to this, except for the one that people did pay attention to the most was refraining from activities after childbirth until a woman was churched, which was about 40 days after childbirth to show that she had recovered from childbed and could be readmitted into daily life. And interestingly, that is still something that continues today, where women are told to abstain from any kind of activity until they go to their six-week postpartum checkup. Adultery wasn't completely uncommon, um, though a woman who betrayed her husband could actually be punished by death because of treason the rebellion of a subject, the wife, against her master, the husband. But this was rarely carried out. And if the marriage had been arranged, it might have even been something that both parties would have been accepting of. And now I want to finish up with some traditions that we still do today, which originated with the Tudors. For example, the tradition of tying old shoes or cans or anything to the back of a car stems from the Tudor times when guests would throw shoes at the bride and groom, and it was considered great luck being bestowed on them if they or their carriage were hit. The wedding cake originally came from a lot of little wheat cakes that were broken over the bride's head to bestow good luck and fertility. One medieval superstition about the wedding veil is that it was once thought that brides were very vulnerable to evil spirits, and so many customs were originated to fight off these evil spirits and the veil was an attempt to disguise her face to fool the evil spirits. Also, the idea of the wedding party all matching and wearing the same thing was an attempt to fool the evil spirits as well. So that's it for this week. There are a lot of different books and blog articles and papers and everything like that. You can see everything, all my sources at englandcast.com weddings, englandcast.com weddings. 
Congratulations to Jess. I hope that your wedding planning is coming along well. And thank you again so much for your support of the Tudor Planner. Let me know what you thought about this episode. You can get in touch through the listener support line at 8016 Tesco or join the new Tudor Learning Circle, which is a free social network just for Tudor history nerds. You can do that at tutorlearningcircle.com. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you are having a wonderful February and have a wonderful Valentine's Day, whether you're alone or apart or together or whatever you're doing. I hope you can find some ways to fill your day with extra special love and chocolate because why not? And maybe a Hugh Grant movie. All right. Have a great week and I will be back soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 